Chapter 18, Part 2 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnobury. Chapter 18, Part 2 The Conquest of India. In returning to Afghanistan, Alexander seems to have followed the main road from Balkh to Kabul, crossing the Hindu Kush by a pass more westerly than that by which he had come. Reaching Alexandria in ten days, he went on to another town, which, if he had not refounded, he had at all events renamed Nicaea, and which is possibly to be salt in Kabul itself. Here he stayed till the middle of November, finding much to do both in organizing the province and in preparing for further advance. He had left a large detachment of his army in Bactria, but he had enrolled a still larger force, 30,000 of the Asiatics of those regions, Bactrians, Sogdians, Dahai, and Sakai. The host with which he was now to descend upon India must have been at least twice as numerous as the army with which he had crossed the Hellespont seven years before. It had increased as it rolled on, and the augmentations far more than counterbalanced the reductions caused by leaving detachments in each new province, and the losses due to warfare or disease. During these years Alexander's camp was his court and capital, the political center of his empire, a vast city rolling along over mountain and river through Central Asia. Men of all trades and callings were there, some indispensable for the needs of the king and his army others drawn by the prospect of making profits by the spoil-laden soldiers. Craftsmen of every kind, engineers, physicians, and seers, cheap men and money-changers, literary men, poets, musicians, athletes, jesters, secretary, clerks, court attendants, a host of women and slaves. In many of the halting places, athletic and musical contests were held, serving both to cheer the Greeks by reminding them of their home country, and to impress the imagination of the barbarians. A court diary was regularly kept, in imitation of the court journal of Persia, by Eumenes of Cardia, who conducted all the political correspondence of Alexander. Alexander had no notion of the shape or extent of the Indian peninsula, and his notion of the Indian conquest was probably confined to the basins of the Kofen and the Indus. He was not the first invader speaking an Aryan language who went down through the northwestern hills into the plains of India. Centuries and centuries before, Aryan herdsmen had flown down in successive waves and found an abiding home there. From Central Asia, from the regions of the Hindu Kush, bringing with them their old hymns, some of which we still possess, they came down into the lands of the Indus. The glorious giver of wealth, and turned to a settled agricultural life, Strangely different was the civilization which grew up in northern India among the men who called upon Dius Pitar from that of their speech brethren who worshipped Zeus Pater on the shores of the Aegean. The castes of the Brahmins and the warriors, the inhuman asceticism of the Brahmins' life, the political influence of these religious men must have seemed repulsive and outlandish to the free and cheerful temper of the Greeks. The great Darius had partially annexed the lands of the Indus, and they constantly supplied troops to his successors. Skylax of Carianda had sailed down the Indus by his orders, 
and probably published an account of the voyage. The stories that were told about the wonders of India excited the curiosity of the Greek invaders. It was a land of righteous folks, of strange beasts and plants, of surpassing wealth in gold and gems. It was supposed to be the ultimate country on the eastern side of the world, bounded by ocean's stream. At this time, northwestern India was occupied by a number of small, heterogeneous principalities and village communities. The northern districts of the land between the Indus and the Hydaspes, a stream which we now call the Jelum, was ruled by Amphis, a prince whose capital was at Taxila, near the Indus. His brother Abisares was the ruler of Hazara and the adjacent parts of Kashmir. Beyond the Hydaspes was the powerful kingdom of Porus, who held sway as far as the Asenes, or Dark-Hued, which we know as the Shinab, and the next of the five rivers. East of the Shinab, in the lands of the Ravi and the Bayis, were other small principalities, and also free, kingless peoples who owned no master. These principalities and free communities differed much in manners and religion. They had no tendency to unity or combination. The free tribes feared and hated the princes. The princes strove with one another. And these states were not all of the same race. Most, perhaps, were Aryan, but some, like the Mali, belonged to the old Dravidian stock, whom, even in the Punjab, the Aryans had not entirely dispossessed or subdued. An invader, therefore, had no common resistance to fear. He had to deal with the states one by one, and he could be assured that many would welcome him out of hatred for their neighbors. The prince of Taxila hoped great things from the Macedonian conqueror, especially the downfall of his rival Porus. He visited Alexander at Nicaea, laid himself and his kingdom at the great emperor's feet, and promised his aid in subduing India. Other chiefs on the hither side of the Indus also made submission. Alexander's direct road from the high plain of Kabul into the Punjab lay along the right bank of the Kofin, or Kabul River, through the great gate of the Khyber Pass. But it was impossible to advance to the Indus without securing his communications, and for this purpose it was needful to subjugate the river valleys to the left of the Kabul, among the huge western spurs of the Himalaya Mountains. It was perhaps not far from Jalalabad that the army came to a city, which was called Nysa. The name immediately awakened in the minds of all the Greeks the memory of their god, Dionysus. For Mount Nysa was the mythical place which he had been nursed by nymphs when he was born from the thigh of Zeus. The mountain was commonly supposed to be in Thrace, but an old hymn placed it near the streams of the Nile. It had no place on the traveler's chart. But here was an actual Nysa, and close to the town was a hill whose name resembled Meros, the Greek word for thigh, and whose slopes were covered with the god's own ivy. Therefore Nysa, they said, was founded by Dionysus. The god had fared eastward to subdued India, and now Alexander was marching on his tracks. Everywhere, on their further march, the Greeks and Macedonians were alert to discover traces of the progress of the Bacchic god. For the purposes of this campaign, Alexander divided his army. Hephaestion, taking three regiments of the phalanx, half the Macedonian cavalry, all the mercenary cavalry, advanced by the Khyber Pass, with orders to construct a bridge across the Indus. The king, with the rest of his army, including the light troops, plunged into the difficult country north of the river, and the winter was spent in warfare with the hardy hill folks, especially the Aspasians and Asakins, 
and in capturing their impregnable fortresses in the district of the Kunar, in remote Chitral, and in the Pankjar and Swat valleys. It would be interesting to follow the exploits of the Macedonian army in these wilds, but we cannot identify the places with certainty. Masaga, of the Asakinian people, in the Swat Valley, was one of the most important strongholds that Alexander captured. We cannot point it out on the map, but Deirtre, another fortress of the same people, may be fairly sought in Deir. The most wonderful exploit of all was the scaling and taking of the rock of Aornus, which has been recognized in the hill of Mahaban, on the right bank of the Indus, about sixty miles from the confluence of that river with the Kabul. When, by a miracle of boldness and patience, he captured this fortress, Alexander had to return on his steps as far as Deir to suppress a revolt of the Asakines. After this severe winter campaign, the army rested on the hither bank of the Indus until spring had begun, and then, with the solemnity of games and sacrifices, crossed the river and marched a three days' journey eastward to Taxila. The rich country of these Arian husbandmen was a striking and pleasant contrast to the barren abodes of the shepherds of Bactria and Sogdiana. The prince of Taxila met Alexander with obsequious pomp, and other lesser princes assembled at the city to do him homage. The administration of the recent conquests was now arranged. A new satrapy, embracing the lands west of the Indus, was established and entrusted to Philip, son of Machatus. Macedonian garrisons were placed in Taxila and some other places east of the Indus, and Philip was charged with the general command of these troops. This shows the drift of Alexander's policy. The Indus was to be the eastern boundary of his direct sway. Beyond the Indus, he proposed to create no new provinces, but only to form a system of protected states, over which the governor of the frontier province would have a general supervision. Alexander then marched by a southward road to the Hydaspes, where he was to meet the only power in the land which could hope to resist his progress. Prince Poros had sent a defiance, and having gathered an army from thirty to forty thousand strong, was encamped on the left bank of the river to contest the crossing. Moreover, Abisaris of Kashmir promised him aid, although he had set marks of homage to Alexander. The boats which had been constructed on the Indus for transporting the troops were, by Alexander's orders, sawn in two or three pieces according to their size, and conveyed on carts to the Hydaspes. After a march which was made slow and toilsome by the heavy tropical rain, the invaders encamped on the right bank of the river, near Jalalapur, and saw the lines of Porus on the opposite shore, protected by a multitude of elephants, his most formidable weapon of war. It was useless to think of crossing in the face of this host, for the horses who could not endure the smell and noise of the elephants would certainly have been drowned, and the men would have found it almost impossible to land amid showers of darts on the slimy, treacherous edge of the stream. All the fords in the neighborhood were watched. Alexander adopted various measures to deceive and puzzle the enemy. He collected large stores of corn, as if he had made up his mind to remain for many days where he was. He spread the rumor that he intended to wait till the season of rains was over, and he kept his troops in constant motion, sending detachments hither and thither. Then one night his trumpets blew, his cavalry rode down to the edge of the water, and to the eyes of the enemy it seemed that the whole army was about to cross. Porus moved his elephants up to the bank and set his host in array, but it proved to be a false alarm. The same feint was repeated again and again. 
Each night the Macedonian camp was in motion, as if for crossing. Each night the Indians stood long hours in the wind and rain. But when he saw that the noise was never followed by action, Porus became weary of these useless nightly watches, and disregarded the alarms of a faint-hearted foe. Alexander, meanwhile, was maturing a plan which he was able to carry out when he had put Porus off his guard. About sixteen miles upwards from the camp, the Hydaspes makes a bend, changing its course from south to westward, and opposite the jutting angle, a thickly wooded island rose amid the stream, while a dense wood covered its right shore. Here Alexander determined to cross. He caused the boats to be conveyed thither, and remade in the shelter of the wood close to a deep ravine. He had prepared skins stuffed with straw, such as he had used in passing the Oxus. When the time came, he led a portion of his troops to the wooded promontory, marching at a considerable distance from the river, in order to avoid the observation of the enemy. A sufficient force was left in the camp, under the command of Craterus, with orders not to cross, unless Porus either moved his entire army from its present position, or was defeated and routed. Other forces were posted at points between the camp and the island, to cross and to help at the right moment. The king arrived at the appointed spot later in the evening, and throughout the wet, stormy night he directed the preparations for passing the swollen stream. Here, on the right bank, he posted the regiments of heavy infantry, which he had brought with him, a precaution, probably, against the possible arrival of Abisares. The wind and rain, which had effectually concealed all the noise from the ears of hostile outposts on the bank, abated before dawn, and the passage began. Alexander led the way in a bark of thirty oars, and the island was safely passed, but land was hardly reached before they were descried by Indian scouts, who galloped off at full speed to warn their chieftain. The king, who was the first to leap ashore, waited until the cavalry had been disembarked and marshaled, but on advancing he discovered that he had landed not on the bank, but on an island which was parted from the bank by a small channel now swollen with rain. It was some time before a passage for wading could be found, and the water was breast-high. At last the whole force was safely landed on the bank, and Alexander ordered his men for the coming battle, the third of the three great battles of his life. It was to be won without any heavy infantry. He had with him only six thousand hypastas, about four thousand light foot, five thousand cavalry, including one thousand Scythian archers. Taking all the cavalry with him, he rode rapidly forward towards the camp of Porus, leaving the infantry to follow. If the whole host of Porus should come out to meet him, he would wait for the infantry, but if the enemy showed symptoms of retreating, he would dash in among them with his superior cavalry. Presently he saw a troop coming. It was the son of Porus, at the head of one thousand horsemen and sixty war chariots, too late to impede the landing of the Macedonians. As soon as he perceived the small number of the foe, Alexander charged and easily drove them back, slaying the prince and four hundred of his men. But Porus himself was advancing with his main army, having left a small force to guard the river bank against Craterus. When he reached sandy ground, suitable for the movements of his cavalry and war chariots, he drew up his line in battle. In front of all he arranged two hundred elephants at intervals of one hundred feet, and at some distance behind them his infantry, who numbered twenty thousand if not more. On the wings he placed his cavalry, perhaps four thousand. Alexander waited for the Hypastus, and drew them up opposite to the elephants. It was impossible to attack in front, 
for neither horse nor foot could venture in between these beasts, which stood like towers of defense, the true strength of the Indian army. The only method was to begin by a cavalry attack on the flank, and Seleucus and the other captains of the infantry were bidden not to advance until they saw that both the horse and the foot of the foe were tumbled into confusion by the flank assault. Alexander determined to concentrate his attack on the left wing, perhaps because it was on the river side, and he would be within easier reach of his troops on the other bank. Accordingly, he kept all his cavalry on his right wing. One body was entrusted to Coinus, who bore well to the right, and was ready to strike in the rear, and to deal with the body of horse stationed upon the enemy's right wing, in case they should come round to assist their comrades on the left. The mounted Scythian archers rode straight against the front of the enemy's cavalry, which was still in column formation, not having had time to open out, and harassed it with showers of arrows, while Alexander himself, with the rest of the heavy cavalry, led the charge upon the flank. Porus, who had committed the fatal mistake of allowing the enemy to take the offensive, brought up his remaining squadrons from the right wing as fast as he could. Then Coinus, who had ridden round close to the river bank, fell upon them in the rear. The Indians had now to form a double front against the double foe. Alexander seized the moment to press hard against the adverse squadrons. They swayed backwards and sought shelter behind the elephants. Then those elephant riders who were on this side of the army drove the beasts against the Macedonian horses, and at the same time the Macedonian footmen rushed forward and attacked the animals, which were now turned sideways towards them. But the other elephants of the line were driven into the ranks of the Hypastus, and dealt destruction, trampling down and striking furiously. Heartened by the success of the elephants, the Indian cavalry rallied and charged, but beaten back by the Macedonian horse, who were now formed in a serried mass, they again sought shelter behind the elephantine wall. But many of the beasts were now furious with wounds and beyond control. Some had lost their riders, and in the melee they trampled on friends and foes alike. The Indians suffered most, for they were surrounded and confined to the space in which the animals raged, while the Macedonians could attack the animals on side or rear, and then retreat into the open when they turned to charge. At length, when the elephants grew weary and their charges were feebler, Alexander closed in. He gave the order for the Hypastus to advance in close array, shield to shield, while he, reforming his squadrons, dashed in from the side. The enemy's cavalry, already weakened and dislocated, could not withstand the double shock and was cut to pieces. The Hypastus rolled on upon the enemy's infantry, who, though they had hitherto taken no serious part in the fight, soon broke and fled. Meanwhile the generals on the other side of the river, Craterus and the rest, discovering that fortune was declaring for Alexander, crossed the river without resistance, and arrived in time to consummate the victory by pursuing the fugitives. Porus, who had shown himself a mediocre general, but a most valiant soldier, when he saw most of his forces scattered, his elephants lying dead, or straying riderless, did not flee, as Darius had twice fled, but remained fighting, seated on an elephant of commanding height, until he was wounded in the right shoulder, the only part of his body unprotected by mail. Then he turned around and rode away. Alexander, struck with admiration at his prowess, sent messengers who overtook him and induced him to return. 
the victor riding out to meet the old prince, was impressed by his stature and beauty, and asked him if he would fain be treated. Treat me like a king, said Porus. For my own sake, said Alexander, I will do that. Ask a boon for thy sake. That, replied Porus, containeth all. And Alexander treated his captive royally. He not only gave him back his kingdom, henceforward to be a protected state under Macedonian suzerainty, but largely increased its borders. This royal treatment, however, though it pleased the generous impulses of Alexander, was inspired by deep policy. He could wrest the security of his rule beyond the Indus on no better base than the mutual jealousy of two moderately powerful princes. He had made the lord of Taxila as powerful as he was safe. The reinstatement of his rival Porus would be the best guarantee of his loyalty. But on the other side of the Hydaspes, close to the scene of the battle, two cities were founded, which would serve as garrisons in the subject land. On the right hand, the city of Bucephala, named after Alexander's steed, which had died here, probably shortly before the battle, of old age and weariness. On the left, Nicaea, the city of victory. Leaving Craterus to build the cities, Alexander marched northward to subdue the Glauci, a hill folk on the border of Kashmir, and, at the same time, to intimidate Abysares. Then, keeping near the skirts of the hills, he crossed the Acacines, more than a mile and a half broad, with great peril and some loss, into the territory of a namesake and nephew of Porus. This Porus was at enmity with his uncle, who probably claimed overlordship over him. He had sent messages of submission to Alexander before the battle, but, disappointed and frightened at the favor which the conqueror had shown his uncle, he fled eastward. Alexander himself hastened in pursuit, crossed the Hydriotis, which, unlike the Achaesines, was easily passed, but he left Hephaestion to march southward and subdue the land of the younger Porus, as well as the free communities between the two rivers. All this northern portion of the Doab, or interfluvial tract, may be added to the realm of the elder Porus. The news that the Cathayans, a free and warlike people, whom Porus and Abysaris had, some time before, failed to conquer, were determined to give him battle, diverted Alexander from the pursuit. He advanced against their chief town, Sangala, strongly walled and protected on one side by a hill and on the other by a lake. It was probably near Amristar, to the northeast of Lahore. The Cathayans, supported by some neighboring tribes, had made a stockade with a triple line of wagons round the hill. After a severe struggle, the entrenchment was carried, and the defenders retreated into the city. They tried to escape through the lake, under the cover of night. But Alexander discovered the plan, and lined the shores with soldiers. Then the place was stormed and slighted. The neighboring people submitted, and all this land was likewise placed under the lordship of Porus. Thus, of the four river-bounded tracts which composed the Punjab, the largest, between Indus and Jelum, belonged to Umphis of Taxila, while the three others, between Jelum and Baas, were assigned to Porus. Alexander now advanced to the Hyphasis, or Baeus, and reached it higher up than the point where it joins the Sutlej to form the Katudru, or one hundred streams. It was destined to be the landmark of his utmost march. He wished to go farther and explore the lands of the Ganges, but an unlooked-for obstacle occurred. The Macedonians were worn out with years of hard campaigning, and weary of this endless rolling on into the unknown. Their numbers had dwindled, the remnant of them were battered and grown old before their time. 
the terrible rains which had beaten incessantly upon them since the crossing of the Indus, and had made their labors doubly laborious, were the last weight in the scale. Their gear was worn out, the hooves of their horses, as one of the campaigners described, were rubbed away by the long, rough journeys. Their arms were blunted and broken in hard combats. The bodies of the veterans were enveloped in Indian rags, for their Greek clothes were worn out. All yearned back for their homeland in the West. They had won glory enough. Why heap toil upon toil and peril upon peril? On the banks of the Hyphasis, the crisis came. The men resolved to go no farther, and their resolution was strengthened by the information that they would have to cross the Indian desert, a journey of eleven days, before they reached the fertile regions of the Ganges. At a meeting of the officers which Alexander summoned, Coinus was the spokesman of the general feeling. The king, not a little vexed, dismissed them, and summoning them on the morrow, declared that he had proposed to advance himself, but would constrain no man to follow him. Let the Macedonians go back to Macedonia, and tell how they abandoned their king in a hostile land. He retired to his tent, and for two days refused to see any of his companions, hoping that their hearts would be softened. But though his resentment made them unhappy, the Macedonians did not relent or go back from their purpose. On the third day, Alexander offered sacrifices, preliminary to crossing the river. But the victims, and this was assuredly no freak of chance, gave unfavorable signs. Then the king yielded, and signified to the obdurate army that he had decided to return. When his will was made known, the way-worn veterans burst into wild joy. The more part of them shed tears. They crowded round the royal tent, blessing the unconquered king, that he had permitted himself to be conquered for once by his Macedonians. On the banks of the Hyphasis, Alexander erected twelve towering altars to the twelve great gods of Olympus, as a thank-offering for having strewn his wonderful path with victories, and led him safely within reach of the world's end. Within reach of the world's end, and not to reach it, this was the disappointment which befell Alexander at the Hyphasis. To understand fully the measure of this disappointment, we must realize his geographical conceptions. Of the southern extension of Asia in the great Indian promontory, and further India, with its huge islands, he knew nothing. Of the vastness of China, of the existence of Siberia, he had not the least suspicion. He supposed that the Ganges discharged its waters into the ocean which bounded the earth in the east, as the Atlantic bounded it on the west, and he imagined that this eastern sea, washing the base of the further slopes of the Hindu Kush and Pamir Mountains, and rounding the northern slopes of Scythia, was continuous with the Caspian. And just as he planned to navigate the southern ocean, from the mouth of the Indus to the Arabian Gulf, or perhaps even round Libya, to the Pillars of Hercules, plans of which we shall presently speak, so he probably dreamed of navigating the eastern ocean, from the mouth of the Ganges, and winning round to the shores of Scythia and Hyrcania. On annexation or effective conquest beyond the Hyphasis, the mind of Alexander does not seem to have been bent. He had only a small army with him, for he had dropped large detachments on his way from the Jalum to the Bais, and he expected no hostilities from the tranquil dwellers of the Ganges. His expedition would have been, in the first instance, a journey of exploration. Circumstances might have made it into a march of conquest. Alexander is often represented as a madman, dazzled by wild and whirling visions of dominion and glory, 
impelled by an insatiable lust of conquest for conquest's sake. But, in judging his schemes, which in themselves seem wild to us, who know the configuration of the earth, we must contract our imagination to the compass of his false notions and imperfect knowledge. If the form and feature of the earth were what he pictured it to be, twenty years would have sufficed to make his empire contraminous with its limits. He might have ruled from the eastern to the western ocean, from the ultimate bounds of Scythia to the shores of Libya. He might have brought to pass, in three continents, an universal peace, and dotted the habitable globe with his Greek cities. Alexander was ambitious, but ambition did not blind him. He was perfectly capable of discerning shine from substance. The advance to the Indus was no mere wanton aggression, but was necessary to establish secure routes for Indian trade, which was at the mercy of the wild hill-tribes, and the subjugation of the Punjab was a necessity for securing the Indus frontier. The solid interests of commerce underlay the ambitions of the Macedonian conqueror. It is not without significance that Phoenician merchants accompanied his army. Alexander retraced his steps to the Hydaspes, on his way picking up Hephaestion, who had founded a new city on the banks of the Icesenes. On the Hydaspes, Craterus had not only built the two cities at the scene of the great battle, but had also prepared a large fleet of transports, which was to carry part of the army down the river to reach the Indus and the ocean. The fleet was placed under the command of Nearchus, and the king's own ship was piloted by Onascritus, who afterwards wrote a book on Alexander's expedition. The rest of the army, divided into four parts, marched along either bank, under Hephaestion and Craterus. As they advanced, they swept the southern portions of the Doabs, reducing the tribes which did not submit. The only formidable resistance that they encountered was from the free and warlike tribe of the Mali, whose territory stretched on both sides of the Ravi. Having routed a large host of these Indians on the southern bank of the river, Alexander pursued them to their chief city, which is probably to be sought at the site of the modern Multan. Since then the Ravi has changed its bed. In the days of Alexander it used to flow into the Shinab below Multan. Here he met with a grave adventure. The city had been easily taken, and the Indians had retreated into the citadel. Two ladders were brought to scale the earthen wall, but it was found hard to place them beneath the shadow of missiles from above. Impatient at the delay, Alexander seized a ladder and climbed up under the cover of his shield. Peucestus, who bore the sacred buckler from the temple of Ilion, and Leonatus followed, and Abraeus ascended the other ladder. When the king reached the battlement, he hurled down, or slew the Indians who were posted at that spot. The Hypasis, when they saw their king standing upon the wall, a mark for the whole garrison of the fortress, made a rush for the ladders, and both ladders broke under the weight of the crowd. Only these three, Peucestus, Leonatus, and Abraeus, reached the wall before the ladders broke. His friends implored Alexander to leap down. He answered their cries by leaping down among the enemy. He alighted on his feet. With his back to the wall he stood there alone, against the throng of foes who recognized the great king. With his sword he cut down their leader, and some others who ventured to rush at him. He felled two more with stones, and the rest, not daring to approach, pelted him with missiles. Meanwhile his three companions had cleared the wall of its defenders, and leapt down to help their king. Abraeus fell slain by a dart. Then Alexander himself received a wound in the breast. For a space he stood and fought, but at last sank on his shield, fainting through loss of blood. 
Peocestus stood over him with the holy shield of Troy. Leonatus guarded him on the other side until rescue came. Having no ladders, the Macedonians had driven pegs into the wall, and a few had clambered up as best they could and flung themselves down into the fray. Some of these succeeded in opening one of the gates, and then the fort was taken. No man, woman, or child in the place was spared by the infuriated soldiers, who thought that their king was dead. But though the wound was grave, Alexander recovered. The rumor of his death reached the camp where the main army was waiting at the junction of the Ravi with the Shanab, and it produced deep consternation and despair. Reassuring letters were not believed, so Alexander caused himself to be carried to the banks of the Ravi and conveyed by water down to the camp. When he drew near, the canopy which sheltered his bed in the stern of the vessel was removed. The soldiers, still doubting, thought it was his corpse they saw, until the bark drew close to the bank and he waved his hand. Then the host shouted for joy. When he was carried ashore, he was lifted for a moment on horseback, that he might be better seen by all, and then he walked a few steps for their greater reassurance. This adventure is an extreme case of Alexander's besetting weakness, which has been illustrated in many others of his actions. In the excitement of battle, amid the ring of arms, he was apt to forget his duties as a leader. Though one of the most consummate generals that the world has seen, he took a far keener delight in fighting in the thickest of the fray, or heading a charge of cavalry, than in maneuvering an army or contriving strategical operations. His eyes and ears were ever filled with the brilliance of battle, the bloom and the beauty, and the splendor of spears. He could not resist the temptations of danger, and he hardly conducted a single campaign in which he had not been wounded. Of the last and most flagrant occasion, when some of his intimate friends upbraided him for acting as a soldier instead of acting as a general, he was deeply hurt, for his conscience pricked him. To have endangered his own safety was a crime against the whole army. The Mali made a complete submission, and their example was followed by the Oxidraces, their southern neighbors, who were also renowned for their warlike character. These lower parts of the Punjab were not added to the dominion of Porus, but were placed in direct dependence on the satrapy which had been committed to Philip. When Alexander had recovered from his wound, the fleet sailed downward, past the junction of the Hyphasis, and the Indian tribes submitted, presenting to the conqueror the characteristic products of India, gems, fine draperies, tame lions, and tigers. At the place where the united stream of the four lesser rivers joins the mighty flow of the Indus, the foundations were laid of a new Alexandria, to be the great trade center between the Punjab and the territory of the lower Indus, and to be the bulwark of the southern frontier of the province of Philip. The next stage of the southward advance was the capital town of the Sagdi, which lay upon the river. Alexander refounded it as a Greek colony and built wharfs. It was known as the Sogdian Alexandria and was destined to be the residence of a southern satrapy, which was to extend to the seacoast. This province was committed to Peathon, the son of Agenor. The principalities of the rich and populous land of the Sindh were distinguished from the states of the north by the great political power enjoyed by the Brahmins. Under the influence of this caste, which was vehemently opposed to the intrusion of the outlanders, the princes either defied Alexander, or, if they submitted at first, speedily rebelled. The spring was spent in reducing these regions, and it was nearly midsummer when the king reached Patala, at the vertex of the Indus Delta. On the tidings of an insurrection in Aracosia, 
he had dispatched Craterus with a considerable portion of the army to march through the Bolan Pass into southern Afghanistan and to put down the revolt. Alexander himself designed to march through Baluchistan, and Craterus was ordered to meet him in Kirman, near the entrance of the Persian Gulf. Another division of the host was to go by sea to the mouth of the Tigris. The king fixed upon Patala to be for the Indian Empire what the most famous of his Alexandrias was for Egypt. He charged Hephaestion with the task of fortifying the citadel and building an ample harbor. Then he sailed southward himself to visit the southern ocean. It was the season at which the monsoons blow from the southwest, and the Macedonians, accustomed to the tideless Midland Sea, were at first sorely perplexed by the ebb and flow of the oceanic tide, at this time especially high and violent in the main arm of the river. Several ships were lost, but the sailors soon mastered the secret of the times and tides, and Alexander fared out into the open sea. He sacrificed to Poseidon. He poured drink offerings from a golden cup to the Nereids and Dioscori, and to Thetis, the mother of his ancestor Achilles, and then hurled the cup into the waves. This ceremony inaugurated his plan of opening a seaway for commerce between the West and the Far East. The enterprise of discovering this seaway was entrusted to Nearchus, an officer who was an intimate companion of his own and possessed the confidence of the troops. Alexander started on his land march in the early autumn, but Nearchus and the fleet were to wait until October in order to be helped forward by the eastern monsoons. End of chapter 18, part 2